All right. What a joyous song. What a great way to start our Easter celebration as we focus on our risen Lord. This resurrection day is a powerful thing, and we see so many images of new life and excitement and all of the wonders that, that go along with it. And people are so positive, and we, we hear statements like, sometimes it feels like Friday, but Sunday's coming, and you can overcome because Jesus overcame. And We somehow find that there's a difficulty in our celebration when life doesn't seem to match up with that victory. That's the first point out of four that I'd like you to see today. As we, as we celebrate the resurrection, as we work through the idea of Jesus actually, historically, physically, bodily, rising from the dead and being alive, we're going to see this core reality that because Jesus Christ is risen, those who believe have life in Him that cannot be taken away. Because Jesus Christ is risen, those who believe have life in Him that cannot be taken away. And yet, as we see the first of our four points, there's a tension between our celebration of victory and our experience of pain. There's a tension between our celebration of victory and our experience of pain. Right now today, as we are celebrating this Resurrection Sunday and we're excited about all of the wonder of the good news, even the secular trappings of Easter that go along with it that, uh, that have this uh, bunnies and candy and parties and family gatherings, there's a bit of sadness that goes along with it because we can't gather like we normally gather. Even as we're doing this, I can think of a friend on Facebook whose mother is on the verge of death. It's hard to celebrate victory when your experience is still painful and you're going through the difficulty of it. Somebody right now, as we're talking and you hear my voice, is battling cancer. Somebody else is battling a, a cancerous relationship. Maybe a marriage that you would put your whole life into, and now it's falling apart. Rebellious children, difficult things that make all of this hard. There's a tension between our celebration of victory and our experience of pain. I'm here to tell you that God recognizes that, and He's not afraid of it, and we shouldn't be either. The first gospel account I'd like us to look at today is in the book of Mark. Mark has the shortest gospel. He gets right to the point with, his, uh, with what he is saying. And Mark calls his gospel the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the last eight or so verses that you probably have recorded in your Bible, we, we think are probably not original, but uh, the best research and the best manuscripts uh, don't have those, and we think that they were added later to really probably to, to round it out and make it feel better. Because Mark leaves us in chapter 16, verse 8, with something of attention. I think that's important for us to recognize. We'll read it in just a moment, but I think it's important for us to recognize that God regularly leaves us with attention in the Scripture. 
Even this weekend, as we see the, the heaviness of Good Friday and the jubilation of Easter Sunday, there's a, a balance, there's a tension. When we see good things happen, there's a butterfly effect, if you will. There are a lot of changes that take place. Notice how Mark leaves this when we get to the end of this passage. This should be the most jubilant, excited, fired-up declaration of Mark's entire gospel. But notice the tone when it ends. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 16, Mark writes, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? You may remember that the soldiers had sealed it. They put a a giant rock in front of it and sealed it up and put a guard there. Who's going to roll the stone away? Verse 4, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Verse 8 is where we believe this ends in the inspired scripture. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. There's a tension between our celebration of victory and our experience of joy. These women just experienced the greatest thing that could possibly ever happen, but their minds couldn't quite take it in yet. They didn't grasp it. They will later. And we know from the other Gospels that they do go and tell the disciples. But in the immediacy of the moment, the tension feels overwhelming. Do they celebrate? Could this be real? Are are they dreaming? Who is this guy? Is this an angel? So many questions, so many difficulties. We go through a lot of questions and difficulties in our own lives. Where is God when it hurts? If God is good, then why does He allow evil to exist? Why would God let this happen to me? I think it's important that Mark ends his gospel there with that tension. Inspired by God Himself, the Holy Spirit inspiring each of these writings. And God saw fit to have Mark leave it hanging. God works in awkward tension. He works in moments of silence. Sometimes, and this may sound counterintuitive, sometimes the anxiety, the difficulty, the fear, even the depression 
can be our best friend in moving us to where God wants us to be. To find the assurance of who He is, not in our feelings, but in the facts of His Word. Sometimes it requires that tension, that difficulty. Praise God, Matthew and Luke don't leave it there. Nor does John. We're going to look at Matthew 28 next. Right before the book of Mark, you find the book of Matthew. Matthew gives a little fuller picture of it. Which I think, this is my speculation, I think that may be why God had Mark leave it the way he did. Especially with Mark being the first of the Gospels to be written. Matthew and Luke and John came later. But Matthew, having, by the time he wrote his Gospel, he would have known about and read Mark's Gospel. He fills in more. He was there. Mark was not. Mark was getting his, his uh, information from Peter. Now, Matthew records it this way. Matthew 28 starting with verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as He said. Come and see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell His disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, He said. They came to Him, clasped His feet, and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell My brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see Me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. There may be a tension between our celebration of victory and our experience of pain. God is not afraid of that tension because He is the King of all things. So when Jesus rises from the dead, 
He claims the authority that is already His. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and tell everybody. Go and make disciples. And as you make disciples, you're going to add them to your number. You're going to identify them with me, with the church. Baptize them into the name and teach them to obey. There's a development. There's a building. You see, God is not afraid of the tension, but He doesn't leave us there. We may have struggle. We may have difficulty. We are in a time. It seems like eternity to us. But it's just time. And in this time, from the fall of man, when sin entered the world, to the time when God removes time and establishes His new heaven and new earth, during all of this time, pain and suffering and difficulty and angst are the norm. The tensions are here because sin is still here. But all authority and heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and He has overcome the grave. He has conquered, and He will return to conquer again. Turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. As we get to the end of Luke, and if you've been with us at Real Life for a length of time, then you probably joined us for our study in Luke. Not too long ago, as we looked at chapter 24, we saw these things. And in the first 12 verses, we see this declaration of the resurrection of Christ. Then after that, Jesus encounters His disciples. It's it's very important in each of these gospel accounts that Jesus not only rises from the dead, but He makes Himself known. He appears not only in private, but in public. He appears to individuals. He appears to groups. Eventually appears to a large crowd of people. Everybody knows. He's shown Himself. Notice what happens here. Luke 24, starting with verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Notice there, were, there was only one mentioned in Mark and Matthew. It's not uncommon to just mention the spokesperson and the silent partner sits behind. Suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered His words. I can't let that go. Before we even go on to the rest of it, we have to recognize that they had forgotten His words. Jesus told them in advance that this was going to happen, that He was going to die, that He would be crucified, that He would rise again on the third day. He told them all of this. And yet, in the moment of despair, they were drowning in their circumstances. 
and they all forgot what Jesus had told them. How often do we do that same thing? We get caught up in the moment. Today is hard. The clouds form and that's all we can see. We can't even remember what sunshine is like. All we have to do is remember God's Word. When we remember God's Word, then the reality becomes dwarfed. I'm sorry. The reality begins to dwarf the circumstances. Kind of reversed my point there. Picking up again. Verse 8, they remembered His words. Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, mother of the Mary, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Notice the tension. He knows what happened. But he doesn't know what happened. He heard it. Jesus had told him too. In fact, he rebuked him. When Peter said, look, Lord, that, there's no way. You're the Messiah. There's no chance. You're not going down, and we won't let you. And Jesus said, man, you're acting like the devil. You're not keeping God's will in mind. You're only looking for what you understand. Now, with these moments behind him, having gone through his denial of Christ, now having hidden out with the believers, sulking, weeping, wondering, how could I possibly have betrayed my Lord? The best news ever has just come to him. Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. Next, we see in the following paragraphs that Jesus met up with two of the disciples who were traveling toward the town of Emmaus, and he, he caught them on the road, and he walked through the Scriptures with them. They were grieving, of course, and he just talked them through the entire Bible, how the whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And as they had this played out for them, they began to understand until they eventually recognize Him. Then He disappears. We pick up in verse 36 as He appears to the rest of the disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, it was too good to be true. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. As he did this, they could see it wasn't a ghost, it wasn't a spirit, it wasn't a vision. 
He said to them, verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. What a powerful thing to gain understanding. You see, the tension that we run into in, that, that kind of hangs here like a heavy cloud between our celebration of victory and our experience of pain is our lack of understanding. We think we see, but we see now in this life like looking through a glass darkly. We don't see what God sees. They say that Job was the first book of the Bible ever written. And that's one of the biggest lessons in the book of Job. I'm God. You're not. You don't see what I see. You don't know what I know. And Job had to be humbled by that. So often our pain comes not from the circumstance itself, but from our frustrated expectations that we think it should be some way else, some other different path that doesn't involve suffering, that doesn't involve struggle or pain or bad feelings or failure. Man, wouldn't it be great to have a Christian life without failure? <laughs> I tell you what, I probably, through an honest looking glass, probably my Christian life has been marked more by failure than by success. Maybe some of you can say the same thing. Praise God. That's not the problem. It's not about me or my failure. That's part of living in this life. Raising my children, I watched every one of them fall, some more than others, Jesse. And as, as I hope she's watching so she can hear that little shot at her. Gabriel smiling. And as they fell... I didn't get angry with them for falling. That's part of life. If you're moving, falling is a possibility. There's risk all the time. And we have a life in a sinful world that has this constant tension. But God doesn't leave us there. Peter had that confusion, but God gives him understanding Later we'll see him restored. As Jesus says, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he restores him three times, which had to have really connected with Peter, who had denied him three times. There's a tension between our celebration of victory and our experience of pain. God's not afraid of it, but he doesn't leave us there either. Notice this second point. Jesus entered our death to overcome death for all who will choose life in Him. Jesus entered our death to overcome death for all who will choose life in Him. We celebrate at Christmas the coming of Messiah. 
Emmanuel, God with us. We spent a lot of time talking about Jesus being God in the flesh, God incarnate. That's necessary because we walked away from God. In Genesis 3, this perfect creation was marred permanently as humankind chose the first real huge mistake that threw everything else into chaos. And the last time, the last time that humans naturally born have a free will. From that time on, all of our will has been bound to sin, every single one of us. So do we have a free will? Yes, kind of, but no, not really. Because everything that I choose apart from God is sin. I'm not inclined to the things of God. My heart doesn't bend to Him. Romans 8 says that the, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to Him, nor can it do so. I don't have the free will to be able to do that. It's only when my whole person has changed that I'm able to actually choose to please God. Jesus entered our death to overcome death for all who will choose life in Him. That first, that first experience of sin brought death. That's what God had told them. You can eat from any tree, not that one. Anything but that. You know that's the only rule that God gave them? There were lots of things that they could have done and murder would have been just as wrong then as it is now. There are only two of them and I was going to kind of limit it. But you know how men and women are. It could get hot. There was no other rule needed. Just don't do that. So that's what they did. They listened to the voice of the serpent telling them they couldn't trust God's word. Couldn't take him at his word. God said, when you do that, you will die. And they did die. And we all died. We all died in them. Sin entered through one person as Adam brought that to the human race. And all of creation was stuck there, stained by sin. You can look up Romans, or, uh, Genesis 3 for yourself, but the Lord delineates the curse that it's more than just humans. Our entire ecology, the cosmos, cursed by our sin. Why do we have natural disasters? Sin. Why do we have broken hearts? Sin. Why does cancer exist? Sin. We had a perfect relationship with the life giver. And our sin broke that relationship and separated us from the source of life. So everything since then has been struggling and prone to death. Ever since Adam and Eve... Each one of us is born spiritually dead with that sin deep in us. Physically alive, spiritually dead. But the good news is that Jesus entered our death to overcome death for all who will choose Him. 
John 11.25 is our memory verse for today. And in the book of John, in chapter 11, we see Jesus encountering His friend Lazarus after the funeral. He's been called to come and deal with Lazarus to help him in his severe sickness. And Jesus delays and He doesn't come and Lazarus isn't healed and Lazarus dies. Jesus feels that tension too. And He wept over Lazarus, even knowing what was about to happen. Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, also wept, said, Lord, if you'd have just been here, you could have stopped this. They didn't understand. They felt that tension. But Jesus came at the point of death, and He enters into this death to overcome death. And He tells Martha in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. He continues in verse 26, And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He leaves her with the question, Do you believe this? And he proceeds to back up his words, by calling Lazarus out of the grave. Open it up, bring him out. Lord, it's been four days. Behold, he stinketh. It's one of those King James verses that never leaves your mind. But wouldn't he? Of course he would. Lazarus comes out fully alive. Jesus has him unbind him and take the grave clothes off. He doesn't need him anymore. He's alive. He would die again. But Jesus makes the point that true life, real life, is in Him. He is the resurrection. Not just that He raises the dead. He is the life. He is the source of all life. Therefore, the source of all resurrection. Resurrection isn't weird for Jesus. That's the biggest thing in the world for us. I mean, can you imagine? If you've been to a funeral to see that person sit up out of the coffin? Or after they've been buried to get... I'm not talking about a zombie movie. I'm talking about a real-life, alive person. To Jesus, that's just another day at the office. He is the resurrection. He is the life. We need to understand that He gives this choice as He gave to Martha. Do you believe this? He calls to each one of us, do you believe this? I've entered into your death. You're living in death right now. And now I want to see you die to death so that you can live to life. Jesus takes our death. This is a really good time for us to talk about what it means to receive Christ. What is the gospel? First, recognize that God created you for a relationship with Him. 
to be with Him in a perfect intimacy. You, you exist, I exist, all of us exist for the express purpose of bringing glory to God by enjoying Him forever in a full, beautiful, intimate, perfect relationship. The problem is our sin, my sin, your sin, all of our sin, separates us from God. We can't be with God because of that. It has severed us from the lifeline, the source of life. God is holy. Sin can't exist in His presence any more than darkness can exist in the presence of light. And we in ourselves, the Bible tells us, are darkness until we come to Him. We can't fix it. We can't stack up our good deeds and try to make it better. We can't go to church and click like on all of the, the Jesus memes that you see on Facebook. Now, none of that's going to get you into heaven. Writing a check to a homeless shelter isn't going to get you into heaven. Even serving as an officer of the church isn't going to get you into heaven. We can't remove our sin with good deeds. But the good news, this is where the gospel comes in. The good telling, the good news is that paying the price for my sin and your sin, Jesus died in my place, in your place, as what theologians call a penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, He was the substitute in our place to take our penalty to make us right with God. The best theological word I know for that is propitiation. That means the appeasement of the righteous wrath of God. It is right for God to be angry with sin, to hate sin, to judge and condemn all that is not holy. And a price has to be paid. Romans 3. I'm going to go ahead and have you turn there with me. I was going to skip it, but we're going to go, go ahead and read it because I can and I want to do that. Romans chapter 3. In the middle of this is a verse that we're all familiar with, or most of us. We're, we're going to start with verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, it's not through the law. You can't get righteous by trying to keep the law. That can't give you life. You're dead. Dead people can't keep the law. Apart from that law, we find the righteousness of God that has been made known, but it's the same, same righteousness that the law and the prophets testified to. This righteousness, verse 22, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. He did this so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Everybody who comes to Christ for life gets it. You are not turned away when you turn to Christ. In no circumstance will Jesus ever look at you and say, nope, not that one. You did too much. Sorry, you weren't chosen. Man, you were chosen the moment you felt that move. How do I know that? Because if the Holy Spirit hadn't called you, snatched you out of the fire and moved you to come to the cross, you would never have come in the first place. If you have that that desire, that understanding that Jesus died for your sins as your substitute, and He rose from the dead just as God said, and you've chosen to put your hope in Him, the only reason you're doing that is because God has brought you to that place. No, brothers and sisters, you will never be turned away from Jesus. But you have to come to Him. He asked Martha, do you believe this? He didn't say, I'm less resurrection or less life based on what you believe. He is who He is. He is the resurrection. He is the life. The question that He asks her is, what are you going to do about it? Our core reality, as we mentioned earlier, is that because Jesus is risen, those who believe have life in Him that cannot be taken away. There's a tension between our celebration of victory and our experience of pain. But the resurrection, but Jesus entered our death to overcome death for all who will choose life in Him. That life starts now. It's a real life in the real world right now. But it doesn't end. It's bigger than the life you have now. But you're going to have to come back after the song for the next couple of points to pick that up. If you have chosen Jesus today, then this is your resurrection day. Jesus has given Himself. And in the giving of Himself for each of us, He has offered life. Life in the person of Christ. This real person, this real reality, requires only that you embrace it. That you say, I've given up my way, and I'm going to choose your way. I've done it my way, and it led to the same death I've always been in. Jesus, I want to live. Save me. If you've received that gospel, then you have entered into a life 
that never ends. You've entered into a relationship that can never be undone. And we should declare that with joy.